So a number of years ago, I was walking through a Christian bookstore, and a book caught my eye on the shelf. It had big, bold font there. It was kind of hand-drawn, and so it was colorful, so it caught my eye. But what caught my eye was not just the graphics. It was the title. The book was entitled, How Come It's Taking Me So Long to Get Better? How come it's taking me so long to get better? When I picked it up and turned it over, I realized quickly this was not a book about spiritual sick or physical sickness and physical health. It was about spiritual sickness and spiritual health. The author was asking the question, why spiritually is it taking me so long to get better? Why does it seem that the walk of faith, the walk with Jesus is often so so hard. It's so uphill. It's so against the wind. Why does it seem that I am so slow in making the progress I want to make? How come it's taking me so long to get better? When I read that title, I, there was something inside my heart that resonated, and it gave voice to some questions I had wondered about. Like, why is holiness so hard when you're trying hard? Why can spiritual growth seem like such a struggle at times? Those may be questions that you have asked yourself or asked others. You may be wondering about personally. How come it's taking us so long to get better? Why do we recycle some of the same sins over and over again? That's the issue we're going to wrestle with this morning. And we're going to do it by, as Pastor Ted said, looking at a passage that I think more than any passage in the New Testament clarifies our struggle and then points us to a solution. This morning is not just about diagnosis. That's the first part of it. Like, why is this so hard? It's going to end up being about solution. What do we do about it? How is hope found for people at Hope Bible Church? What does God say to us? This morning I want to talk to you about God's strength in our struggle from Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. So you've grabbed a Bible and hopefully you've joined me there. Romans is near the end of the New Testament. About three-quarters of the way through the Bible, if you turn it, you'll find Acts and then Romans. Today we're in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 14, and we'll work our way into chapter 8. I know we've already prayed, but would you allow me to pray for myself and for us as we focus now on God's Word? Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we come to you by the help of the Holy Spirit, and we have a request for you. We're asking for your help today. And specifically, we're asking that you would help our minds to understand what your word says and our hearts to embrace what it says and our lives to reflect what it says. And that will only happen, Lord, we know, if you bring us your help right now. And so we ask for it by faith through Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read beginning with Romans 7, verse 14. And as I read, I want you to sense the emotion in Paul's words here. In fact, the exasperation in Paul's words here. Listen closely. It, it just oozes out of the text. Listen to it as I read. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, well, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Did you feel the frustration that Paul expresses as he writes those words? It's a different tone than we normally encounter when we read Paul's writings. If you've read some of the other books that he wrote, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, this doesn't sound like the Paul that we normally read. In fact, it's so different, it's so strikingly different, that some biblical scholars have said, well, this can't be Paul talking about his life as a Christian. It has to be Paul telling what life was like before he came to know Jesus. Back when he was living under Judaism, he was trying to keep the law of Moses, and that that must be what he's talking about. He was struggling back then. But then when he came to Christ, things changed. And that certainly is one way that you could read these verses. But I don't think it's the best way to read these verses. I actually think Paul is talking about part of his experience as a Christian. And I say that because of the way he writes it. There's a grammatical thing that Paul does here that is really genius, but it points us in the direction that Paul is writing about an experience he's having as a Christian. Here's why I say that. If you were to read verses 1 to 13, I didn't read verses 1 to 13, but if you would go back and read verses 1 to 13, here's what you would find. All the verbs are in the past tense. Paul's talking about what had happened. For example, look at verse 9. I was once, so looking backwards, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Past tense, right? But then when Paul gets to verses 14 down to verse 25, he changes and he uses present tense verbs. For example, look at verse 14. For we know, present tense, that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. That's present tense, sold under sin. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells, present tense, in me that is in my flesh. Paul uses present tense verbs all the time. Present tense talks about what's going on now. So I conclude this, that Paul is writing about some of his experience as a Christian. Not all of his experience, but some of it. He's saying, listen, I know what this fight is like. How come it's taking me so long to get better? Now, let me ask you a question. If Paul found walking in Jesus' way, if he found the spiritual life to be a struggle, what do you think that implies for you or for me? You think you're going to breeze through this? No. 
If Paul is saying, I know what the struggle is like, then that's a struggle you and I are going to face. And you say, well, why is that? Why is the spiritual life at times such a struggle? It's not always that way, but why is there a struggle? Why does it feel that holiness is uphill and against the wind? Well, Paul explains it in these verses that I just read. And here's the thing that he says. This is the first thing I want you to catch. Paul is going to tell you why holiness is hard. And essentially, I'd put it this way. Holiness is a struggle because of something in you, namely the flesh. Holiness is a struggle. Holiness is hard. Holiness is uphill because there's something inside of you that's pulling you back. Paul calls it the flesh. Holiness is a struggle because of something in you, the flesh. Paul refers to this thing called the flesh over and over and over. Did you catch that as I read? For example, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. There it is. Some of your translations might say, I am of the sinful nature. But the, the Greek word there is the word sarks. Means flesh. You say, well, what is what is what is exactly the flesh? Well, sarks, the Greek word for flesh, sometimes speaks of something outside of us and sometimes something inside of us. For example, flesh can talk about your skin, something outside of you, very physical. You are flesh and blood, right? So sometimes we talk about the flesh as our skin. But here Paul's talking about the flesh as something inside of us, something spiritual. And he's saying that that something inside of us is causing us to struggle. The flesh is. So what I want to do now is walk you through these verses a little more closely, dipping into verses 14 to 25, and I want to tell you three things about the flesh that you need to know. Now, i got to warn you, this is going to be tough sledding. For the next few minutes, you're going to have to think hard. This is theologically thick. But listen, you had an extra hour of sleep, so you have no excuse today, right? You're rested and fresh and ready to go. Let me tell you three things, and this will be theologically thick, but where we're going to end up is very, very practical. Not that theology is impractical, but you're going to see the outplay of theology in just a minute. But hang with me in the first part. Let me show you three things about the flesh that you need to know. Here's the first one. The flesh is part of you even after you become in Christ. Even after you are in Christ, even after you become a Christian, the flesh is still part of you. I know that from verse 18. Many verses say that, but verse 18 is quite clear. Paul says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. He's talking about something in me. And then he qualifies it. He says, well, that is nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So Paul is saying, I got something inside of me called the flesh. And there's nothing good about it, he says. And it's part of me, even though I am in Christ. Now, what's, what's confusing here for some of us is this. It's like, well, Paul, you just said in a little bit earlier, in fact, in chapter 6, you said that we're new people in Christ. Like when somebody becomes a Christian, they become a brand new person. They get a new heart. They have a new disposition for God. In fact, if you go back to chapter 6 and look at verse 11, Paul says, here's your identity if you're a Christian. Look what he says, chapter 6, verse 11. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So have you come to trust in Jesus? You say, I have. Then Paul would say to you, well, then you are a new person. The deepest part of you now belongs to Jesus. The truest part of you, the truest part of your heart wants to go in his way. 
That's who you are. But then he comes to chapter 7 and he goes, but I do have to tell you, there's still some bad news here. You're a new person in Christ, but you've got some leftovers from your old life that are still inside of you. And he calls that the flesh. In other words, you still have some remnants of who you were that have now been, as it were, carried into who you are. You are in Christ. You're a new person, but you still have some of what Paul calls the flesh. And there's nothing good about the flesh. In fact, the flesh is waging a guerrilla warfare against the new part of you. You've got a new heart in Jesus. The flesh is trying to fight that. You've got a civil war that's going on inside your soul. And so you say, I feel that sometimes. It's like, I want to go this way, and then part of me is pulling me the other way. I know what that's like. There was an Anglican bishop many years ago named uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, godly evangelical man, who said this, a Christian is known by two marks, his inward peace and his inward warfare. Like one of the marks you're really in is that you've you, you got a fight going on. You're new, but you've got some of the old. In fact, Paul uses the imagery of warfare when he talks about the flesh. Look at chapter 7, verse 23. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, I got this guerrilla warfare going on inside of me. And, and the flesh is attacking. It's fighting who I am in Christ. If you've been tracking with the news, you know that uh, recently, I think within the last week, the head of ISIS, a guy named al-Baghdadi, was tracked down, hunted down, and killed. He blew himself up. So he was the head of the caliphate that they tried to start there in northern Syria. And he had this group called ISIS. And for a while, they had territory, right? And then there was a coalition of the U.S. was there, the Kurds were there, some of the Syrians were there. And they fought ISIS, and they drove them out of both, most of the cities where they had lived. And now they've killed the guy who's the head of ISIS. But let me ask you, is ISIS dead? You'd say, no, no, there's still pockets of resistance. There's still going to be a guerrilla warfare. There are people who are loyal to ISIS that are blending into the scenery and at, at a propitious times they're going to attack, right? The flesh is like that. You see, sin has been defeated in your life if you're a Christian. Satan, the old man, the old master, has been dethroned. One day he will be permanently quarantined in hell. So... Sin has been defeated, but get this, the flesh is like the remnants. It's like the pockets of guerrilla warfare that are fighting against you. That's why it feels like such a fight. That's why sometimes the spiritual life is a struggle. You say, I'm living in a war zone, and the war zone is me. So that's the first thing I want you to know about the flesh. The flesh is part of you, like the guerrilla warfare part of you, even after you're in Christ. Here's the second one. Hang with me. This one's thick as well. The flesh... Is an, here's the second one. The flesh is an internal reality that pulls you away from God and towards sin and towards self. The flesh is like this, for, this, this pull. It's an internal reality that pulls you away from God, pulls you towards sin, pulls you towards self. I know that because Paul calls it a law. This is, really, this is hard to understand a bit, but when you get this, the penny drops and you go, oh, I get it. Look at how he calls this flesh a law. Look at verse 21 of chapter 7. So I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Keep going, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells. See, he's saying law, 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 law. Well, what's he mean by that? Paul's using law in two ways here. Sometimes he uses law as law as a set of rules and regulations. Right? We know that, like the law of the land or the Mosaic law here in this case. So the law is like all the, the regulations, the rules that God has set down. Sometimes law is that way, but catch this. Sometimes law is used not as rules, but as a reality. Think of the law of gravity. Law of gravity is not like a set of rules. Law of gravity is the principle that says, if I walk off to this stage and I keep walking, uh, I'm not going to be able to walk on air, right? I'm going down. There, it's, a, it's a reality. Paul is saying the flesh is like this spiritual gravity that pulls me down. It pulls me away from God. It pulls me towards myself. It pulls me towards sin. It's very real. You don't see it, but it's very real. In fact, I got a little video here I want you to watch that illustrates this point. Watch, watch this, and then we'll see, see if you can connect how, it's, how it applies. People have been curious about this for a while. So if you go back, and here's a beautiful example to the 1920s, a young scientist by the name of Asa Schaefer asked a friend, could you put on a blindfold? I'm going to take you to the edge of a field. And he said, what I'd like you to do is walk across this field in a straight line. Just stay as straight on course as you possibly can. So the man headed off, and here is Asa's map of what happened next. The man starts to walk. And his route, as you see here, begins to tilt ever so slightly to the right. We're going to speed this up just a bit. Notice that the blindfolded man now starts to turn dramatically, taking him back to the road where he started from, and then across the road, and then around again, and then back again, and around again. And increasingly, he's moving in smaller curls until finally he hits a tree <coughs> and stops. All the while, he thought he was walking in a perfectly straight line. Strange? Well, there are many studies just like this. From 1928, here are three people who leave a barn on a very foggy day, and what they want to do is go to a point about a half mile away. Here's what happened, the map version. The barn is here. The destination is here. Now watch this. Off they go. They think they're walking straight, but instead what they actually do is they start to turn and turn and turn and end up, weirdly, back at the very place where they started, the barn. This experiment has been done in all kinds of situations. Here's another 1928 study. A man is blindfolded and then asked to jump into a lake and swim in a straight line to the other side. Now here is where he swam. There is apparently a profound inability in humans to stick to a straight line when blindfolded or when there is no fixed point, no sun, no moon, no mountaintop to guide them. In this last case, a blindfolded man is asked to get into a car and is told to drive in a straight line across a totally empty Kansas field. Now, the driver is not in any danger. All he has to do is hold course, but here is the map that shows what happened next. 
For 80 years, scientists have been trying to explain this tendency to turn when you think you're going straight. They thought maybe this is some form of handedness, like being a righty or a lefty, or maybe it's a right-left brain thing where one side of you is slightly dominant and then the dominance builds over time. Maybe it's just simple asymmetry. Some people are stronger on one side or have different sized arms or legs, but try as they might, and we're still trying these experiments, nobody has really figured out why we can't go straight. So think about that spiritually. The flesh is like that same tendency that makes us, when we're trying to go straight, suddenly we just kind of turn, and we turn away from God, and ultimately we turn in on ourselves. The flesh does that. It pulls us off course. We're trying to go straight, but we don't go straight. So the flesh is, first of all, it's part of you even after you're in Christ. It's a spiritual reality. It's an internal reality that pulls us away from God towards sin and self. Here's the third thing. This is, this is pretty discouraging as well. The flesh is stronger than your will, emotions, or your mind. So like you got your will set, you have your emotions set, you have your mind set on going straight, and you still aren't going to end up there. You say, how do you know that? Well, look with me. Look at chapter 7, verse 21. This flesh is stronger than your will. Look at verse 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, that's my will, right? I want to. Evil lies close at hand. We say, well, my emotions are there. Well, that's verse 22. For I delight in the law of God. My emotions are in the right place. Verse 23, but I see in my members another law, waging war. So my emotions are there, but I still have a problem. Verse 25, my mind is in the right place because he says at the end of verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So here's a person, their mind's in the right place, their will is in the right place, their emotion's in the right place, and they say, I don't get to the right place. Have you found that ever happen on a Sunday at church? You come to Hope Church, and you leave here, and you're just pumped up, right? You, you just think, you know what, this was great. Today I, I, I read God's word, I heard God's word, I, my mind has been instructed, my emotions they're fired up. We sang our praises to the Lord. My will, I desire to do God's way. You leave here, and by 3 p.m. today, it's like things just fell off the, off, the, off the wagon, right? The wheels fall off. You go, why is that? It's because of the flesh. Oh, the world and the devil are fighting too, but Paul is saying, something inside of me is pulling me away. Now, if we just close shop right now, if I just say, okay, this has been the word of the Lord, God bless you, see you next week, it'd be pretty grim, right? You'd say, wait a second, we came here for a little hope today. So far, you've just told us a lot of bad news. Well, thankfully, Paul does not end here. Chapter 7 is not the end of the book of Romans. It moves right seamlessly into chapter 8. And get this, in chapter 8, the whole tone changes, like dramatically. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Look what Paul says. Right after he has this rather dire predicament, he goes into chapter 8, verse 1, and says, There is therefore now, like right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul starts changing things. And when you get into chapter 8, wow, the sun comes out. In chapter 8, there is hope again, and the hope is all centered around the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8 could be called the Holy Spirit chapter. 
Like 1 Corinthians 13 is like the love chapter. Romans 8 could be called the Holy Spirit chapter. The Holy Spirit is mentioned only one time in chapter 7, but like 20 times in chapter 8. And Paul is saying, listen, you're struggling? Then God is sending help, and the help comes in the form of himself as his Holy Spirit. You see, in chapter 7, the fight, catch this, the fight is between you and your flesh, and the flesh wins, keeps pinning you. Chapter 8, the fight is between you and the Holy Spirit who's inside of you. You're together teaming up, and you're against the flesh. And Paul says, that's where victory comes. So here's what I want to do in our last few minutes. I want to survey for you chapter 8 and show you eight ways from chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit will help you in the struggle. Eight ways. And I can just touch on them this morning. But if you will write them down and then go think about them and pray about them, these things can be life-giving. If you're a Christian, Romans 8 should be on your playlist. It should be like something you walk through over and over and over. Because here is where we find hope in our struggle. So let me give you eight ways the Holy Spirit helps us in this walk towards holiness. Here's the first one. It comes right out of verse 4. The Holy Spirit helps us walk straight. We can't seem to go straight on our own, but the Holy Spirit helps us walk straight. Look at verse 4. He says, in order that the righteous requirement, so that's holiness, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says, according to the flesh, I keep going off, I keep going sideways. But he says, when I walk according to the Spirit, I walk towards the righteous requirement that God has, which is holiness. The Spirit can help me walk straight. Verses 5 and 6, here, here's the second thing. The Spirit can help me think right. Help me think right. He can help my thinking go in the right direction. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. He's saying this, look, in yourself, you're going to do a lot of stinking thinking, right? Your, your flesh just takes over, and your mind goes down trails that are not happy, and they're not healthy. You rehearse old grievances. You worry about the future, and it's like the mindset on the flesh, it just takes me to dark places. And he goes, well, that spirit came. And a mindset on the spirit is life. Did you see that, verse 6? Life and peace. Would you like a little more life and peace inside your head? You say, yeah, I, I could really use that. So that's what the Spirit's coming to help you with. So he helps you walk straight, think right. Here's the third thing, verse 11. He helps you come alive. Do you ever feel spiritually lethargic? Do you wake up some mornings and you just go, I, I got nothing. I don't feel fired up about God. I don't feel anything. I just feel tired. I don't feel animated or energized. Well, look at verse 11, chapter 8. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He says the spirit comes and he animates our mortal bodies. He's the one that gives you the ability to get up again and say, okay, Lord, I don't feel it today. But if your spirit will help me, I'm going to go for it again today. How can you pull that off? Well, the spirit helps you. It helps you come alive. Here's the fourth one, verses 12 and 13. The spirit can help you kill sin. Put sin to death. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says, listen, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to do a lot of sin, and that's lethal. But the Spirit will come and help you put to death the deeds of the body. Do you have a sin that pins you over and over and over? In previous days, it would have been called a besetting sin. We all have one or two or more. It's like a sin that just seems to have your name and number, and it knows you, and it takes you down again and again. And you go, I can't whip it. You're right, but the Spirit can. And it says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. So there's a sense in which the Spirit is saying, listen, you give that with me. You give that to me, and we will put this thing to death. The Spirit comes to help you in that area of your life, helps you kill sin. Here's the fifth one, verse 14. The Spirit helps you follow close. Follow close. Look at it. It talks about being led. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, you're trying to walk on the way of holiness and you're tempted to kind of drift off. But the Spirit says, follow me. Keep in step with the Spirit. We'll walk on this way. He's the one that leads you in Jesus' way. The Spirit does that. Here's the next one, number six. The, the Spirit helps you draw near to God. Draw near. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I love this. He's saying that the Holy Spirit inside of you whispers to you, sings to you, to say, listen, you can come close to God. I know he's the almighty God. He is, but he's your Abba Father. And then your mind kicks in and says, yeah, but I, I can't come close to God. I've got too much sin in my life. Too much. Maybe someday when I get things ironed out, I can be close to God. And the Spirit says, no, no, no. Right now, in the midst of the struggle, while you're putting sin to death, the Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit and saying, come close. Abba Father, call on him. In fact, verse 16, I love this. It says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Musicians know about a thing called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance. And what it would be is if there was a, a, an acoustic piano, a grand piano up here, you could come over to it and without playing any notes, none of the keys, you could put your foot down on the sustain pedal and then you could lean into the cavity of the piano and you could sing a note. Try this sometime. So, you know, you just go, bah, and then stop. And if you listen, you'll hear that same pitch coming from the piano. You'll hear this, bah. And what's happened, sympathetic resonance, is that the frequency that you're singing finds its corresponding frequency on the string. And that string, even without being struck, sounds. It, it hums. I think the Holy Spirit comes to your human spirit. Because he lives within you and he sings to you. And he sings to you in the midst of the struggle and he says, come close. And something inside of you goes, I want to come close. And he sings, Abba, Father. And you go, Abba, Father. Like, where does that come from? How, how does that happen? Paul says it's the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you belong. In the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the struggle, that's what this passage is about. The spirit is singing, you belong. And your human spirit says, I belong. And it, 
There's, this is an incredible thing that the Spirit of God does. He helps you draw close. But that's not all. Seventh thing comes out of verse 23. He helps you look ahead. He gives you a longing for what's coming. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's the Spirit of God who puts within you this groaning, this longing, that one day you're going to be free. One day you're going to be done with this fight. One day you're going to be home. One day the redemption of your body, your body will be glorified. It will be like Christ's body. And the Spirit gives you this anticipation. And in the midst of the struggle, he's saying, don't forget what's coming. This is what's coming. John says it in 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when we see him, we shall be what? Like him. And the Spirit is the one who says, don't forget, we're going, we're going to make it there. I'm going to get you there. He gives you this longing. Where does that come from? It's the Spirit of God. And then finally, the eighth one, verse 28, he helps you pray better. Don't you love verse 26, 27, and 28? Start in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you ever feel like you just don't know what to pray for? Do you ever hit a point where life is so complicated and some of the situations you face are so thorny and so convoluted and so long-standing that you just go, I I don't even know exactly what I should be praying for here. Do you ever feel that your prayers are rather lifeless, that they limp, that they're mechanical? It's kind of like, you know, it just... Man, I just seemed like I should pray better by the time. I've been around this thing for a while, and my prayers still feel so halting. The Spirit comes in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He takes those things you can't even put words around. And he brings them to the Father. And he makes your prayers more than they could ever be. The Spirit's doing that. You see, what Paul is saying is this. Holiness is a struggle because of something in you. But you got to remember this. Holiness is possible because of someone in you. Because of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that will help you. Day by day, step by step. In fact, when I was in seminary, one of my profs gave an illustration that I've remembered now these plus 30 years that helps you understand how does the Holy Spirit actually work this out in my life. The prof's name was Bill Lawrence, and he told the story of how on Sunday afternoons, he and his wife, Lynna, would drive to a retirement home where Lynna's mothers lived. Her name was Mrs. Little, and they called her Grandma Little. And they would drive to see Grandma Little, and they would take her from, that, from her retirement home, and they'd bring her to their house for the Sunday afternoon. So he said, I would get to the retirement home, and every week it was the same. Grandma Little would be there, seated in a rocking chair. And she would have on a dress, and her hair would be perfect, and she would just be waiting there. And he said, and I would come in, and we always had the same conversation. I would say, how you doing today, Grandma Little? And she would say, pretty good. And then he said, are you ready to go? And she would say, not too fast. And she would put up her arm and he would put down his arm and he would help her stand up and there was this long corridor that led from her apartment to the front door 
And he said, and we would walk down the corridor together, Grandma Little walking by the strength of Bill Lawrence. And then he said, I like to think that in the mornings as I'm waking up, the Holy Spirit comes to me and says, how you doing today, Bill? And I say, pretty good. And he says, are you ready to go? And I say, not too fast. And then I lift up my life, I lift up my arm as it were, and I put my life in his, and throughout the day, as Bill says, it's Bill Lawrence walking by the strength of the Holy Spirit, step by step. I'm still moving my legs, but the strength comes from him. And as you walk through the day, leaning on the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, you go through moments when, as you're walking along, suddenly thoughts start crowding into your head that are those same dark thoughts that you fought for years. And as you're walking, you say, Lord, I need your help right now. And the Spirit helps you with your thinking and helps you set your mind back on the things where it should be. And then as you're walking through the day, you do stumble a few times. And when you stumble, you feel guilty and you think, i got to be far from God. And the Spirit says, no, 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 you can come close. Jesus died for that. And the Spirit helps you to put sin to death. You hand it over to him again for the millionth time. And then you go through periods where you just feel lifeless and you cry out and say, Lord, I don't seem to have the strength today to do this. And the Spirit says, well, lean on me. I will give life to your mortal body. And on those moments when you feel far from me, let me let you know I'm praying with you. I'm praying for you. Bring me your prayers. Though they seem so weak, bring them to me. And you go through the day walking by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that's the way we are to live. If you try this on your own, your strength, guess what? You're like the blinded guy in the field trying to go straight and you're going all over. But when you follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, he's the one who walks you through. It's not an easy walk. It's not a a walk where you never stumble and struggle. But you have strength for every step of the way. And the Spirit keeps giving you this longing. Keep going. We're headed towards home. One day you're going to be there. I will be with you every step of the way. And the Spirit takes you through. And Paul says, that's how you live the Christian life. See, holiness is a struggle because of something in you. You got the flesh. But holiness is possible because of someone in you, the Holy Spirit. Now, all that I've said today is predicated that you actually have the Holy Spirit in you. Like, none of this is possible if you don't actually have the Holy Spirit in you. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the only way you can have the Holy Spirit within you is if you belong to Jesus. You see, when you come and give your life to Jesus, he not only takes away your sin, he gives you a new heart and he gives you himself. He sends his spirit to live inside of you. Jesus promised that. But if you're here today and you've never come to belong to Jesus, if you've never personally looked up to him and said, I need you, I give you myself, I have these sins I need forgiven, you die, I just give all that I am, I I trust in you, you are my Lord. If you've never done that, you don't yet have his Holy Spirit inside of you and you're on your own and you're going to be wandering through life. But it doesn't have to be that way. When you come to put your faith in Christ, you are given the gift of the Spirit. That happened a day that I will never forget for my friend Ludwig. When we lived in Ottawa, my neighbor across the street was an older Polish gentleman named Ludwig Seifraki. And Ludwig, as I got to know him, told me a story. He had lived in Poland during World War II. They emigrated after World War II. 
And as he said, I lost faith. I have no faith. I have, he told me he hadn't prayed for 30 years. You see, when they were in Poland, the Nazis came in and did atrocities that blew up their faith. Eliza, his wife's brother, was marched out of town and just executed by the Nazis. And on that day, Eliza's mother said, there is no God. How can there be a God? So they moved to Canada. He had been living here three decades. And Ludwig stopped going to any church. And he said, I never prayed. I have no faith. Well, we had an alpha course at our church. And he said, I'd like to go to that. So one day we came home. I still remember we drove into my driveway. Ludwig's there. And that morning we had been teaching them about how the Holy Spirit comes to live inside your life when you trust in Jesus. And he said to me, is this true? I said, it is. The Bible says it. And he said, I have never heard this before. I said, Ludwig, would you like this? He said, I would, but I have no faith. I said, well, why don't you ask God to give you the faith to believe in his son Jesus and to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit? So in my driveway, I'm in the driver's side. I said, Ludwig, I'll tell you what, I'll pray first. It'll be kind of a template. Just I'll give you some kind of words. But the words, they don't have to be my words. They have to be from your heart. You tell Jesus that you want your sins forgiven. You want faith to trust in him, and you ask for this gift of the Spirit. So I prayed, and then Ludwig prayed. First time in 30 years. And I will never forget his prayer. He, he starts his prayer like this. He goes, Lord, this is Ludwig. You know, it had been 30 years, so maybe up in heaven they'd kind of forgotten about him. So, Lord, this is Ludwig. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to have faith. I want to have the gift of your Holy Spirit. Now, I've been around people that have prayed a prayer like that and have been saved and have been changed, but I have rarely been around someone who knew something had happened. Ludwig started going around the neighborhood, telling all the neighbors, I have been born again. He would just start announcing this. We had, a, we had a Thanksgiving dinner where we had all our neighbors in, and we were all going around saying, what are you thankful for? And people are saying all these innocuous things. I'm thankful for my trip to New Zealand. I'm thankful for my cottage. It comes to Ludwig, and he goes, I am thankful I have been born again. And I'd say, Ludwig, this is great. You might have to temper it with some folks. You know, you're, you're going on pretty strong. And then Ludwig gets ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is just one of the worst things ever, Right? Lou Gehrig's disease shut your body down parts at a time. He lost the use of his legs. Then he lost the use of his arms. But the Spirit of God inside of him kept him from losing his faith. I remember I was called up to the hospital, and they said he's not going to make it through the night. It, it had got to his lungs, and it was shutting him down. He was going to suffocate. His mind was still sharp, so I went up to the hospital and as I walked in, there he is in the, hosp in, the, in the hospital bed. He has an oxygen mask on, and he sees me, and he smiles, and he, he nods to the nurse to take the mask off for a second. They take off the mask, and he looks at me, and he says this, I will see you again. It's like the Spirit of God in him walked him home to glory, right? He knew there was more coming. His faith, which had been dead, he says, for 30 years was now alive. How does that happen? It's the Spirit of God that does that. Now listen, you may be here today, and you're like Ludwig. You have never yet really come to know what it means to have God living inside of you by His Spirit because you've never come to belong to Jesus. You've never trusted Him. We're going to close in prayer, and I'm going to invite all of us just to bow our hearts before the Lord. And if you're here today... And you know that like Ludwig, you need that. And you want that. You may say, my faith is so small. 
Well, maybe today this auditorium can be like my driveway. And you can say, Lord, this is me. He knows who you are. Heaven has not forgotten you. And you can ask him today to forgive your sins and to make you new and to give you himself by his spirit. Pray that in your own words. I promise you on the basis of scripture, God hears that prayer. And you will be born again and you will have a life and his spirit will sustain you on this walk. And then if you're here and you already belong to Jesus, but you know that sometimes the struggle is harder than you would even like to acknowledge why don't you today say, Lord Jesus, I need you and I need your spirit. I need to walk by the spirit. I need him to help me put sin to death. I need him to remind me that I belong to you. I need to help me get my thinking straightened out. I need you to help me, Lord, draw close and look for heaven and pray, Lord, help me. If you cry out to him and you lean into him, Paul says in the Bible, and God says to you, the Spirit of God will indeed do that for you every step of the way till he takes you home. So let me just leave you with a moment of stillness. The, the worship team is going to lead us in a final song, but would you just take a moment privately and talk to God? Whatever he's processing in your heart, bring it to him. The Spirit will even help your little prayers make their way to heaven. Open your heart to him. Invite him to strengthen your heart by his spirit. Let's pray.